Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is A. Maria. In this episode, we speak with Michigan-based writer and activist Dennis Boatwright. Dennis was held captive by the state for 24 years of his life and has written about the strategies and politics of the prisoner resistance movement. We speak with him in the wake of the two most massive prison strikes in so-called American history to grapple with the possibilities of political organizing on the inside as well as the challenges that lie ahead. Before we begin, here's Cape Syed with some movement news you may have missed. On September 11th, Mumia Abu-Jamal published a piece in the San Francisco Bay View calling for the support of Ramona Africa. Ramona Africa is a survivor of the police bombing of the MOVE commune in 1985 and a former political prisoner. She recently fell into a coma and was hospitalized due to health complications related to post-traumatic stress disorder. You can help support Ramona Africa by visiting GoFundMe.com slash Help Save Ramona Africa. On September 18th, McDonald's workers staged a one-day strike in order to call attention to widespread on-the-job sexual harassment and how it is handled by the company. The historic walkouts led by working-class women of color took place simultaneously in 10 cities across the United States. The strikers have put forth several demands, including enforcement of a zero-tolerance policy, a safe system for employees to file complaints, and the formation of a committee on sexual harassment where workers and women's rights groups have a say. McDonald's has yet to respond to their demands. Numerous cities held celebrations for Indigenous Peoples Day on October 8th. Over 60 cities in so-called America have officially declared the second Monday of October as Indigenous Peoples Day. Recent additions to the growing list include Tacoma, Washington, and Rochester, New York. Thanks to the work of local Indigenous activists, more cities are rejecting the whitewash history that venerates Christopher Columbus by celebrating indigeneity and paying tribute to Indigenous struggle. This is Alejo, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Co-producer A. Maria and I are here with Dennis Boatwright, a writer and activist in Michigan who was held captive by the state for 24 years. While he was incarcerated, he courageously wrote for the San Francisco Bayview and organized resistance from the inside. We are extremely glad to have him on the show today to talk with us about the prison strike and ongoing organizing efforts by prison rebels. Hello, Dennis, and welcome to our show. Hello, and it's a pleasure to be here. So we just wanted to first start out by asking you about the process of your political cessation. My sense is that you didn't think of yourself as a militant or a revolutionary before being in prison, and that the 1993 Lucasville uprising in Ohio had something to do with your political cessation. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, if I can, I would like to discuss very briefly prior to me being incarcerated because I had somewhat of a political consciousness at the age of, I would say, nine and 10 years old. I can recall me watching the Iran hostage crisis that was going on at nine years old. And then the next year following that, I remember Ronald Reagan's attempted assassination on his life. Mm -hmm. And then the year after that, I remember the assassination of Anwar Sadat. I bring this up to say that while I used to be really clinging you know, to the uh, TV screen. My mother, she noticed that, so she went and got me a year subscription of the Detroit News at, you know, 10 years old, because she's like, you know, my son has an interest in world affairs. So prior to me coming to prison, I had somewhat of a mainstream outlook on international relations, foreign policy, different things like that. So I was somewhat primed to take on the role once I became in prison. But being specific on my the radical side of my political perspective came when really the, the fourth day I was in prison, I received some mail from a family member. 
and on the outside of the envelope, the N-word was wrote on there. So when I got the letter, I showed a black guard who was walking the past, taking count. I said, I said, look at this. And she was like, oh, my God. She said, I think I know who did it. It's this, it was a white prison guard. She said, he does that. He don't like prisoners getting outside support. So at that time, I started looking at the government differently because I had told myself that even though I had like 24 years to do, before I get home, I said I was going to be somewhat of a neutral prison. I was just going to do my time, you know, read books, exercise. But when I seen that that person did that, it kind of catapulted me to start taking steps to remedy, you know, racism. So I will fast forward this up to 1993, I was at Carson City hmm. Correctional Facility, level four. I was uh, 23 years old at the time, and I was watching CNN News, and I see that the first World Trade Center um, bombed me, and I was wondering, you know, what was the government doing to make people so angry and want to react to them in that way? So. You know, I'm sitting there. This is when I start studying political science more formally with textbooks and stuff. And I started learning about the Antifada and different things like that. Hmm. Because in prison, obviously, they, at the time, they didn't have college or anything like that. So it was more self-study. So the next month in 1993, I'm sitting watching CNN News. So I look up and I see Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan on CNN News with the Lucasville Uprising prison so i'm listening it was a live broadcast i'm listening to some of their demands and i was thinking in my mind i said you know what we need to be saying some of those same things because the tb test things they were trying to force upon us and a lot of the things that really ignited that uprising was occurring throughout the michigan department of correction so i took interest in that and i subsequently started speaking to other prisoners they would tell me to come to Black History Month to speak and or Kwanzaa, for example. So I would use that time to be talking about world affairs and, you know, what was happening in Lucasville. So that the Lucasville incident is the one that really put me and radicalized me to take for, for me to start taking a more stronger posture and addressing some of the racial um, injustices in prison. So for people that maybe don't know exactly, you know, you were literally watching TV as this prisoners uh, inside Lucasville, like Sadiq Abdul Hassan and others, had taken over the prison, right? I mean, you were watching this on TV. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that was like and the, the, the specifics of, of Lucasville, what was happening? Well, the prisoners were, um, had took control of L block in Lucasville. And just to see it, getting international coverage of it, made me pay more attention to it. And I also had to really question myself, am I serious about making changes? So when I see Imam Siddiqui, Abdullah Hassan, taking those stance, I really had to question my own stance. Am I just a writer or am I just a person that can speak or am I a person that's going to really try to mobilize and organize people? So while I was looking there, it was kind of, I felt kind of sad because the subsequent days I'm talking to other people, other prisoners, you know, privately, and they showed no interest. So I started to become lonely because I don't have no people to share my fervor 
and my outrage at what's going on in Lucasville. So I eventually, I started writing Sadiqi Abdullah Hassan, and he wrote me back. He was happy because he said, unfortunately, he wasn't receiving a lot of support from the African-American community. Even the Muslim community was mostly, you know, people weren't black. So he thanked me for doing that. And then after that, we kind of like roused each other up <laughs> through our letters because I was already there and didn't even know it. And he was, he was put on death row until this, yeah, this day. Yeah, he, he's been on death row since that day. But his incident made me become more of a political activist in prison. But there were repercussions, too, after that, that I learned about counterinsurgency mm-hmm. and all of these things in prison that I was subsequently subjected to. You said that you felt lonely inside immediately. Eventually, you develop a relationship with Latino Hamilton and other imprisoned rebels in Michigan as well, right? Yes. I was in a maximum security prison. I was in Algermax. And Lucina was also in a maximum security. We actually were in Supermax part of the maximum security prison. And I used to see on TV how the news would have former prisoners, people who were incarcerated, making statements about prison, what needs to be done. And I didn't think they did a good job. You know, they were chosen because they weren't that articulate and um, pointing out some of the changes that need to be in prison. So I started asking myself in the prison cell, I was in what they call the hall, the supermax part. And I wanted to know who are like the best and the brightest people that can articulate our viewpoints in here without making a fool of us. So I was talking to an older guy and he said, I know a guy named Lucino Hamilton. You know, he's young and um, he's at Iberica. You might want to reach out to him. So I wrote him, and Lucino Hamilton, you know, he's kind of skeptical of people, like I am. He was like, who are you? You know, different things like that. So I introduced myself about maybe three months later. He had wrote and apologized. He was like, brother, I'm glad you come up with this idea. You know, I apologize for throwing, you know, up these defenses. He was at first skeptical, right? I mean, it's building trust is difficult. Can you tell us sort of what it was like? What is it like organizing on the inside? Well, I'm glad you bring up the mistrust. I actually was reading some of Che Guevara's books. I don't know if it was Che Guevara Speaks and he, or the Bolivian Diaries. And he made an interesting observation. He said, as a revolutionary, he said, we must learn how to be trustful. He said, we start out being distrustful because amongst our ranks, we may have collaborators and different things like that. So this is what I meant by when Lucino Hamilton was skeptical. The government sends agent provocateurs to you, and it's hard for you to distinguish that. You know, you can't just have open arms to everybody who come with a red, black, and green uh, Hmm. flag or anything. But uh, that's what he meant by it. He was skeptical. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of organizers who have never been incarcerated and need to understand some of those logistical challenges of connecting work through the cracks in prison walls and within the facilities themselves. And often people who are inside can't speak openly about these things. So can you tell us more about how organizing is done under this like quasi-totalitarian regime of control and when you're facing the constant threat of retaliation? What are some useful strategies to undertake? Well, some useful strategies is similar to some of the groups in Middle East or some of the groups 
and um, Central and South America. You don't allow people to join the movement or organization. You have to select them. So what happens is if we're organizing, we have to already know people who are predisposed to be able to handle pressure from the institution if it comes. When I mean by pressure, where they're not going to spill out all the information. Well, you know, Lucino and Dennis, they were organizing about the poor food quality. So we already have in our own mind a few of us, people that we haven't observed, that would possibly, if we tell them that we exist, they would want to join. So that's one of the things we do. We didn't, we didn't just get on the loudspeaker or pass anything out saying that this is an action that we're going to take. We hand-selected few people that would do it, and they would hand-select a few people that they know. But also we have people, a part of the movement, you have some people who like to make a lot of noise about things. But people like Lucino uh, Hamilton, we had to keep him out of solitary and confinement. So we had other people doing certain things that really don't even know that me and him exist. We were like, kind of like behind the scenes because a lot of the prison population they didn't want us in solitary confinement because they said, if you're in solitary confinement, we can't benefit from your knowledge, your organization skills. But So we have other people who are willing to kind of put their self actually on the forefront. You know, so sometimes we would have meetings in prison. You can't have more than four people in the group. So sometimes we have one or two and we would talk about what we're going to do and Eventually, somehow or other, it was spread without them actually knowing that it was me, Lucino, whoever else was actually organizing this thing. Sometimes the prison thought it was, it was, it was somewhat random. We was at a certain prison, I'm not going to say the city, and we noticed that there was a reduction in the quantity of our food and a de decrease in the quality of food as well. So one day, you know, I was in the child hall and I was at really almost acting out of character because I'm, I went to the child hall and they gave me a tr food tray. That's something that I wouldn't even give my own dog. So I was outraged about it. But as I say, I'm somewhat quiet back there. So I did something that I never really did. I went right behind the food counter where the prison guards at and I handed them a tray. I said, you eat it. So they got all startled and different things like that. So. They end up calling me, you know, up to the control center and asking me, am I behind things? I was like, no, I'm, you know, I, I just read books and things like that. But what I eventually did was told a few people that I know that likes the spotlight and stuff. I was saying, telling people, I said, if we want to make a statement, a nonviolent, in this case, nonviolent statement, Let's not go to the child hall. We're all going to miss our meals, and we're going to wait till they seven. they're serving their best trays, and which, sadly, is chicken. So I said, when they have chicken, when they think that the child hall is going to be overflowing with inmates, nobody's going to show up. I told a few people to spread that. And actually, when the day came, I said, instead of us going to the child hall, we're going to go to the backyard you know, where they lift weights, play basketball. I said, we're not going to even go, and we're going to wear all blues. And I was surprised that of every race and religion participated, that I would say it was like an 85% success rate. Mm -hmm. Everybody went out, 
you know, then the cops, they start getting, you know, nervous about that. And then eventually they called me up to the control center. They are all mad because we, I, had, I was writing articles at the same time, I think to the Michigan Chronicle and, you know, San Francisco Bayview or whatever. I was sending letters to the elder telling them what we were doing. And those people, unbeknownst to me, they were calling the prison saying, we want better food and different stuff like that. So the warden called me out with the captain, the lieutenant, sergeant. They was all upset at me. And they actually got some letters that I was mailing out. They copied them. They said, it's you. So they was like, you're a good writer and everything. Why won't you write about things that happen in China? Why you, you know, you got to be bringing pressure on us. I said, did I say anything that's inaccurate in these letters to these newspapers? Point out anything that was false. And they couldn't. So I said, that's my position. So they eventually gave me a cameraman job, which is the most prestigious job in the prison because you get to go outside with the visitors. They tried to give me that to placate me. But I used that to... I used to have a typewriter and I used to type out a website. I used to have a newspaper called The Bottom Line secretly. And what I used to do, I used to have these, uh, the website printed out on my typewriter and I would cut them out and put them in my shoes. So when I would go out to the visiting room, I would give them to the, the visitors. They're like, here, check this out. This is what we on. So that's why I took the job. So. Uh, it was a success, and then when, after that, that meeting, they tried to intimidate me, you know, you know, different things like that, and they knew they couldn't buy me, you know. I said, if you want the really honest God truth, I said, it's the quality of the food and the quantity. So believe it or not, even though it was small, but it was a, a, a victory, that Saturday they gave us extra pancakes and, you know, different hot dogs and stuff, and then people stopped. <laughs> spreading rumors about me. Dennis was in there. He was telling them, you know, different stuff like that, even though it wasn't that dramatic. But there was a change. So I think it's important to contextualize the recent prison strikes as part of a very long continuum of prisoner-led struggle. And in the wake of the 2011 hunger strikes that rocked the California prison system, you wrote a short article for the San Francisco Bayview titled, Prison Liberation Movement Needs New Kinds of Thinking. And I'm just going to quote here from that. So in that article, you wrote, a critical examination is overdue for the simple fact that, with the exception of written pieces presenting historical analysis and victimization accounts, no new seminal prison literature has been produced that's both thought-absorbing as well as strategy-focused. You wrote that, I confidently support this assertion based upon existing publications. For instance, Blood in My Eye, Soledad Brothers, and Wretched of the Earth, are still the primary and perhaps only liberating tracts introduced to newer generations of inmates who are searching for enlightenment and a better understanding of their own incarceration. So that was in 2011. Do you think that's still the case today? Yes, it's still the case. Unfortunately, as I said in the article that you alluded to, that we need a new kind of thinking because most prisoners in there even the ones that are somewhat conscious, they don't have what we call a grand view, a grand strategy of how the world works. They can say, you know, George Jackson said this, they did this in Attica, or uh, Frederick Juctus did this, or this march happened on this date. But they're not thinking like statesmen. A person who not only is a historian, but he may have to be a military strategist. He might have to be a counselor. They don't have that 
versatility in their thinking today. So this is why I was trying to say, and I got some backlash. Most people like it because they were thinking that I was saying something that was against, like I'm against, you know, I love Lucasville. I like that to happen more often. But what I was saying that we need to not to be, be less random and more calculating because we want to win. You don't win by just beating on your chest and say, I did this. You win because you see that your actions succeed and you obtain some of your goals. So this is what I was trying to, well, I was trying to share with prisoners that we need to think we need not to be uh, random walking around with bullseyes on our back, making it easy for them to knock us off. I said, just imagine if George Jackson was alive. Um, just imagine if Malcolm X would live. And I said, it's nothing wrong with martyrdom, you know, because you're supposed to want to risk your life, but you don't want to risk it unnecessarily. So I said, let's start thinking. If we have to give our lives up, we have to do it because a part of any group, if you're a part of a movement, if you're not really, like Francois Nan said, if you're not really to give your life up for that cause, you're just really playing games. So, but I wanted us to be thinkers in the 21st century so that we can win and we can succeed. So part of your quote-unquote solution to the lack of serious strategic pieces at that time was to encourage prison rebels to undertake a rigorous program of what you've called self-learning. You've also written about the importance of sending books in to prison rebels, but there seems to be a structural challenge to that strategy, which is the exorbitantly high illiteracy rates. So I guess following that logic, I think that's an important limit to think about when we put together strategy. So do you have any sense of how to address this in developing the prisoner resistance movement today? Yes, what you probably would have to do is go actually visit a prisoner. If you want to talk about the serious stuff, you have to be sitting next to them and, uh, you know, sort of whisper in each other's ears. This is some of the people who used to visit me. We never would discuss in mail or on the phone. We would sit, we'd be sitting next to each other. We kind of whisper certain things that we, you know, we would address things that we didn't want the administration to know. We would do it in person. And if you want, in my opinion, of how to get a prison movement, unfortunately, it takes society because if you notice, George Jackson didn't come out of vacuum. The political atmosphere in society typically reverberates inside a prison eventually because some of those people get incarcerated that were a part of the movement on the outside. And by them being in there, they start influencing other people. What happens now is prisoners like Lucino really don't have any visible models to follow or to be inspired by. And I say this because Lucino Hamilton, he's like Walter Rodney. He's like, you know, uh, a France Fanon, you know, Che Guevara, you know, these type of people, you know, Ho Chi Minh of that. But. He don't get support from those type of people because they're not visible in society. What do you have now? Instead of Malcolm X, George Jackson, or the Black Panther, you got Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. They're not going to inspire no revolutionary waves inside a prison. So the prisoners don't have anything to be inspired by. So I wanted to push back a little bit on that, right? Because the Free Alabama Movement, for instance, these guys are writing about Black Lives Matter. These guys are writing about the movement that's happening in the streets, right? We had three major rebellions, Baltimore, Ferguson, and Charlotte. So 
you know, the national the national guard literally came out right and for for these uh, uprisings. And so I think that there is somewhat of a feedback loop, right? You know, guys inside are talking about these struggles. Even Jail's or Speak is talking about the abolish ICE uh, situation over the summer. And there are, I think, these relationships. I wonder if you think that perhaps there is the possibility for these relations to happen, and that perhaps they are, are happening in, in different ways uh, already, right? With th- there, there has been a shift recently, right? Like, how do we account for the two major, most widespread prisoner-led actions in, in U.S. history, right, to come in the wake of Ferguson, Baltimore, and so on. Well, you know what, you brought up a good point. And what I was saying is when you look at, when people think of the 60s and 70s, African-Americans, they automatically think of the civil rights movement. You don't even have to mention it because it was so a part of the fabric of the culture. Everybody supported either Martin Luther King or you know Malcolm X or, uh, or uh, the Black Panthers, or, you know, Black Liberation Army. There's many groups, so this was a part of the ethos of that era. Here, there are many competing movements mm. out there, you know, good movements. And these movements need to connect and give somewhat of one message that will encapsulate what all of them trying to achieve. Now, there, there is possibilities with the Black Lives Matter movement, but movements somewhat have to be in the air. Just like I use, always use example, Palestinians, the little kids, when they be throwing at the tanks, rocks at the tanks, nobody had to tell them to do that. It's a part of the ethos, the culture. So in prison, this type of ethos have to be in existence and it has to be widespread because any revol- if you study any revolution, or uh, uprising, you at least have to have 20% of the population participate for it to be successful. They said that's at a minimum, you have to have 20%. So of the two, what is, whatever 20% of 2.5 million is, you would need that amount of prisoners, prisoners supporting the notion that we need to have some change, just like you would in society. Because if it was just, if, if, if you and I were enough, we know we're dissatisfied. We would be able to change Detroit just to the race we have. But unfortunately, you need other numbers, not so much money, but other numbers and more participants. Yeah. I feel like there's so much more we could talk oh, about. Totally. But the, yeah. so is there anything that you want to mention or have included in here that we didn't get to yet? Yes. I'm writing a book. I have been writing in prison called The Struggle Behind the Walls. And it's a unique book. I call it The Wretched of the Earth of the Prison System. And in this book, I write and define the struggle that actually goes on between conscious prisoners and the Michigan Department of Corrections staff. Not just in Michigan, but in the U.S. prison system. And I, I details all the, 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 the actors involved in this struggle, you know, whether it's some sympathetic guards, some militant prisoners, and different things like this. So it's, going to, it's a pretty unique book. There's a chapter devoted to unique prisoners that have an impact in prison. And obviously, Lucino Hamilton is going to be one of them. Siddiqui Abdul Hassan is a one, another chapter I wrote on their life, their impact, and as well as a Bomani Secure. So it's, it's a unique book. It's coming from a new perspective and is written by a prisoner who did 24 years in prison, who was actually a part 
and up the forefront of the movement in prison. Really looking forward to reading that and maybe have you on the show to talk about it soon. I would love to. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show and uh, talk to you soon again, Dennis. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes or read their transcripts on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.